Kevin went out and got his votes. McConnell kept his people in line. And now it's the Republicans who look like responsible adults and the Democrats look like a bunch of disorganized morons. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Whole gang is back. Scott's here. Kevin, Sean, Jared, I'm Joe. hey And Scott is immediately after last week's Flyover Country podcast. Mm. Uh, I mean, everything we talked about ended up being like national news. We were like the pre-show for your Randy Weingarten. I could not believe, here you're talking about her more like in the abstract and yeah. just in theory, and all of a sudden she shows up down the hall, and, and then she's on the set with you at CNN? I, I mean, I looked, uh, I, looked, uh, I looked evil in the face, and I told it, what for? I mean, I, I mean honestly, I, I, I got to tell you, first of all, we did have a great show, and it was good preparation. I found out about uh, that I was going to be on with her about five minutes before it happened. Wow. And normally what happens on these things is they interview a newsmaker and then we come out and talk about it. Well, they interviewed her right in front of us. So not only had I watched her congressional testimony were lying through her teeth, then I watched her lie through her teeth to Allison Camerata, who, by the way, I think did an excellent job interviewing her. Mm-hmm. But Weingarten sit, sits there and lies and talks in circles and it's word salad. And, th- and she's just filibustering with nothing, hoping you'll forget that she was literally the worst person in the world. Well, I didn't forget. And you know, and parents haven't forgotten. And I needed to let her know. And I did. And and uh and I'm glad I'm glad that interaction happened because looking her in the face from two feet away, I got the distinct feeling I'm the first average parent she's met since this entire thing happened. You popped a bubble there. And yeah. if we could, so two things right right before the, uh this Scott having the opportunity to actually Speak to her, and I'm going to compliment you again. Shockingly, uh, that <laughs> you. you know, but it was you were so controlled, and despite the fact that the, the, the country is up in arms and pitchforks and flames, whatever else, but but you just were very polite. You gave it, to, but at the same time, very direct. But right before that, I knew that where I knew where Scott was sitting because I don't know if you heard Randy's Randy Weingarten is talking to Allison Camerata. And at one point, she talks about not wanting to close the schools, and then she and I can tell that that something has distracted her. She said, "Oh, I see your eyebrows raising." She's talking about you, right? She was because <laughs> what she it. what she had just said was the most brazen, shameless lie. But that was what was amazing. You know, um, it's one thing to like watch someone on TV do this lying, and we do that all the time. But to sit like face to face with someone and and just they just so effortlessly. Mm-hmm. breeze through this narrative that they've concocted, which is has no basis in reality whatsoever. I Part of the reason I was so anxious to confront her, I, I'm a forgiving person. I think we all are. You can make mistakes and say, look, I wish I had done this or I hadn't done that. And, you know, in retrospect, you, you can always do that. She's not doing any of that. There is no remorse. And, and this lying in the hopes that people are too dumb or they've moved on or whatever to remember it. And when you can literally Google Randy Weingarten school closure and there's like 10 billion right. entries for it. I mean, in the in the fall of 21, she was out saying anyone who wants to open the schools is callous and cruel. Mm-hmm. And now 
it, I got to tell you, man, looking someone in the face and watching them, it's, it's a, I, I did raise my eyebrows. It's shocking. Camerata asked her, did she have any regrets? She said, I regret COVID. Yes. No, nothing uh, about, about uh, hers. So right after that is when Allison Camerata turns to Scott and says, Scott, and here's what we heard. Yeah, um, we don't know each other, but speaking on behalf of millions of American parents, I have four at home. I had to teach them at home. My wife had to teach them at home. I am stunned at what you have said this week about your claiming to have wanted to reopen schools. I think most you'll find that most parents believe you were the tip of the spear of school closures. There are numerous statements you made over the summer of 20, scaring people to death about the possibility of opening schools. And I hear no remorse whatsoever about the generational damage that's been done to these kids. I have two kids with learning differences. Do you know how hard it is for them to learn at home and not in a classroom that was designed for them? And for you to sit in front of Congress and the American people and say, oh, I I wanted to open them the whole time. I, I am shocked. I'm stunned. I'm stunned. And there are millions of parents who feel the exact same way. <laughs> so a couple yeah. things there. First of all, I, I called you not long after that. You did. And yeah. I said, this, this is the most remarkable thing. Mm-hmm. And as it turned out, it, it was. And yeah. that, that clip that was, who, who did that clip? Who cut the clip for That was. Uh, it was uh, Kevin hmm. Tober from, from Newsbusters. Newsbusters. And he, you know, he does, uh, if you don't follow him, he's great because he, I don't know how he does it, but he watches all the cable shows all the time, all day. And uh, and he and Curtis over there at that uh, Newsbusters, like they just do a terrific job of almost immediately identifying key yeah. moments and, and clipping them, and, and they yeah. circulate it. He was the first one to post it. So two million views later, <laughs> and counting. Well, that's just on the one tweet, right? Because other people then started clipping it. I mean, we're it, it's been seen. I will just tell you, walking around for the last few days, I've I've been to the track, I've been to the store, I've been in airports. Like people are. People are walking up to me saying, man, I, are you the guy from the internet? <laughs> and I was like, oh, you turn your internet on? <laughs> There's, I, I saw a little kit now where I, I show people how to do that. You press a little button. It's yeah. easy. But it but it has it has made the rounds, and uh, people are sharing it. They had it on the TikTok, which, you know, I don't do, but it was on there. And so it was... So the Chinese have even seen it. They, even the Chinese have seen it. And uh, and uh, I, I'm just, you know, what? what is not on that clip, because she started talking, and I, and I came back in, and I said, let me ask you a question. Why did the rest of the civilized world in, mm-hmm. in Europe get this right? They, they didn't close the schools. And she was like, well, they just didn't give us the information we needed. You know, and, and although I almost just breeze like, well. Who, who, you know, how could we have possibly? The rest of the world knew the schools should be open, and the fact that she can't say, "Listen, I, we should have kept the schools open," and I regret my role in this. The fact that she can't do that now, nuts. And then to pivot to praising Andrew Cuomo, oh, yeah, <laughs> oh yeah, for his record <sighs> on COVID. I mean, absolutely atrocious. It, it's the worst kind of bureaucrat. Is the one that has like no self reflection. They're only interested in power. Mm-hmm. They're they're dangerous. When you cannot reflect upon your own decision making and the consequences of your actions, and the only thing you can do is run your little personal algorithm like how does this affect my position or my image or my standing in the world, but you have no ability to self reflect on what did I do to kids? What did I do to Parents, what what have I done to this country? 
That's dangerous, man. That that right there, and you know, Fauci's the same way right now because he's out on the same tour. It's well, gas, you know, I mean, it's, it's, I, the, it's the Gaslight Tour, and yeah. And, yeah. and and the fact that neither of them apparently has any remorse. What I don't think they they must not understand the damage they did. Kids, parent, and it's not just academics. How many kids did they doom to sitting at home where they're being abused or where they get nothing to eat or whatever? How many kids? Then you go to the academics, the test scores. I, I've got a, a son going to high school in the fall. I've been talking to, to people in high schools. The test scores have totally cratered right. for eighth graders going into high school this year. They're behind in math. They're behind in just virtually everything. Wall Street Journal said today that civics scores are the lowest they've ever been. Of course. And 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 so now the high schools, because of these decisions, now the high schools are burdened. So you got a bunch of incoming freshmen. By the way, it's not the kids' fault. you got a bunch of freshmen coming in. They're not ready. They're not ready. And so now the high schools that are supposed to be doing high school are now doing remedial and high school. This just like piles on top of itself. On on top of that, Jared, is the fact that and which populations are the most adversely affected. It's going to be the people of 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 less means. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, African-American kids are going to be more adversely affected. And you would think that these groups that. You know, at least on on the surface, are are supposed to be advocating for you know for the, for those 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 groups. Are the there's no like I said before, no self reflection on that. Yeah, I mean that, and we only know that there's been learning loss because those kids went back to school. There are tens of thousands of students who we just lost, who we literally lost, lost. in the system, who went home and never came back. Jared, let me ask you. I, I think I know the number, but you may you may know it more specifically than me. In Jefferson County, Louisville, Kentucky, where we are, where we record this podcast, I I seem to recall at one point during the shutdowns that like thirty percent of the kids were not never logged in a single never time. Even checked right. Into right. Think the about Zoom. that. Just gone. Yeah. One third just gone. Just gone. Just gone. Right. And I remember having a conversation with a couple of education people in this very county when the te- when the first set of test scores came back and I was like, hey, we need to talk about it. Oh, everybody knows these tests don't matter. Everybody knows these test scores are are bunk. Yeah. I, the the whitewashing of this, the cover up the 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 gaslighting. I mean, top to bottom, it's crazy. Speaking of living within that bubble, so Politifact, we're recording this by uh. the way at at nine forty, the evening of May third, year of our Lord twenty twenty three. This morning, Politifact. I'll quote from their tweet: Teachers Union President Randy Weingarten advocated for reopening schools with pandemic safety measures. She criticized the Trump administration's 2020 calls to reopen schools fully, but it's misleading to claim that she opposed reopening at all. That's right. She went in there on this interview for two reasons. One was to shift blame. Yes. It wasn't me. It was the Trump administration for their bad guidance or wanting to go too far too fast. And then she also brought a book with her. I think she kept holding up her book as a prop. I I don't know. Two purposes. Sell that book. Shift the blame. Well, she was using the the COVID report, basically. This is sort of like the... It was the, just the Warren Commission. It was really weird to watch. I to be I, able to shift it. She's pivoting it away. I, brother, I, yeah, brother Sean, please tell the people at home about Politifact. I mean, I just assume it's like a George Soros and Andy Bashir funded political <laughs> operation. I mean, I mean, look, if Politifact is saying something, you can rest assured, it is only being said to mislead you for the purpose of helping whatever liberal Democrat special interest is in trouble today. Oh yeah. Period. That's why it exists. So when I saw that. You know what that told me, Joe, was that they know that interaction we had on CNN and the interactions she had in Congress were absolutely damaging. It was like word had gone out. 
Yes, like, we have to protect Randy. She's taking on water. I do think that uh, this particular issue, and then we should move on because we talked about it last week, too, but but I, I think it does transcend political party. Yes. Uh, and I, it's, it's something, this, and this is where it's really dangerous for them to say, holy crap, this is actually resonating beyond just the, the, the usual columns. Let me also say one other issue about this because it has impact on 2024. Ron DeSantis... Republican governor of Florida is talking about his policies on COVID and is being attacked right now by Donald Trump, who's essentially siding with Fauci and Gavin Newsom and Andrew Cuomo. And it's bizarre. I mean, the the whole politics of this COVID business for the last two weeks is insane. You've got Trump siding with Fauci, Newsom, Cuomo. You've got Weingarten and Fauci out claiming they had nothing to do with it. It's nuts what's going on out there. Do not forget, please, I beg you, do not forget. That was exactly my question. And we talked about this a year ago, right? And I've asked that question after Glenn Youngkin was elected and, and wondering about this and saying, how long are people's memories on this? Yeah. Well, people, for instance, this fall, Sean, in the gubernatorial election, do you think that the COVID shutdowns will still resonate with the electorate in Kentucky? I think so, but I think it also has to be framed in a way that makes it real is that you have to have a candidate or a nominee talk about this issue that is real and has implications for the lives of these children that put your place put yourself in the place of a parent who's doing the homework that sat there with the zoom screen not only that but the long-term damage that that the extra expense that we're going to have to spend not only as a society but a parent's going to have to spend on a tutor uh, extra training to get ACT prep, SAT prep, to get their kid caught up to get into college. There has not been one official, any of these people that Scott's listed out, uh, Governor Bashir, no one has even remotely been like, here's a plan to address what we're talking about. They're all we want to do is talk about raises, this sort of thing. No one's even talking about like ways to address the actual learning problem to get these kids caught up. Here's why liberals should toss Randy Weingarten and everybody else who joined her overboard. Because what they did exacerbated the number one problem they say exists in America, income and wealth inequality. Exactly. Because they took the poorest kids and set them so far back that their life outcomes are going to so badly exacerbate income inequality in this country. Look, I'm lucky. We're all, we're all lucky here because I had the flexibility and the resources to begin to try to make up for this. But I'm going to tell you, we're not. Like, at home, like, we're still working through this. <clears throat> a lot of families don't. Your single parent, blue-collar worker, the people who don't have lots of money to throw around on, you know, you were mentioning tutors and stuff. There's people that don't have resources right. to do that. And there are schools that don't have extra resources to provide right. it either. So my point is, Weingarten and all these people and the liberals are like circling the wagons around them. Why? Why? She arguably has made income and wealth inequality worse than any other living American, and she ain't no Republican. And it's and it's not just, you know, we, we spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about the educational outcomes, the learning loss. We don't spend a whole lot of time talking about the mental health consequences yes. of this on these children. It's not just the, the fact that they can't take a test and, and, and know— math, science, and arithmetic or, or you know, basic civic skills. It's, it's, you know, the other part of it is interacting with people, being able to, yes. to like, losing out on that, those social skills 
that that development over the course of formative periods of your life, there's going to be serious long-term consequences about that. And we, we, we have to give that the attention that it deserves, too. And, and when people talk about uh, the mental health epidemic that's going on in our country, I mean, this is going to be the biggest, the most important period of time was about three or four years ago for what's going to shape what's happening in the future. The, the well-being of a child, are they educated? Are they fed? Are they loved? Are they safe? Kentucky, you know, I heard Kelly Craft say this on the debate the other night. I know we're going to talk about the governor's race. <clears throat> Kentucky's like the number one state for child abuse, mm-hmm. normally. Then we have the shutdowns, and all these kids who normally get to go to school for a safe place and a warm meal, that the, forget the academics for a minute, were plunged. Their lives, which are already unimaginably difficult, were plunged into even further darkness by Randy Weingarten and Andy Bashir and the rest of these people who insisted on this long past the point when we knew about it. It is outrageous. Is this going to, Do people have a memory of this? I think they do, but I think Sean's right. A candidate, this is part of the larger narrative. You know, everybody wants to talk about Andy Bashir. Oh, he was governor during an emergency. Well, what were the what were the consequences of his actions? And I think in this case, we know. It's pretty clear though. This is the reason why you said you know the, the, People do have children at home, and they, they are suffering today. This is the reason for this reclamation tour. It's because they're realizing, oh, crap, there are, in fact, implications for us that are going to last longer than schools reopening. And so the longer this goes on, they have to try to reframe this. Otherwise, the people actually might get wise. Yeah. I mean, what, what you realize about this woman, Weingarten, is this is all about her. It has nothing you- to do... But you know, Sean, Sean and I talked after my appearance with her the other night, and you were you were talking. Was it your dad? Yeah, and he and he parents. said, and, and and you were <laughs> discussing her, and he he asked maybe the key question: Why does she get to have any say in whether the schools are shut down at all? Exactly. Right. As yeah. a union yeah. president, and, and I mean, she's not a government official. Nope. She's she hasn't not been a, hasn't she, been in a classroom really for what thirty years. As far as like I that. know, she's not the science, <laughs> uh, and hasn't claimed to be. What? Why does a union thug? get to decide whether our kids get generationally damaged by a school closure. That is what I would like to know, and we ought to be talking about as a country. Another attempt to, to recast this and, and what we're talking about here, I'm going to go ahead and mention his name once, oh. um, because, uh, and I'm pretty, I have, a, I, I think, a great deal of grace toward most media. Uh, as a, Sadly, yes. <laughs> I, no, I do. <laughs> And I think that, you know, and I'm not going to hammer some folks because it's, you get one, upset one day about one story or whatever else. It's, I think for the most part, you know, people are doing what they're doing. But Joe, you kept coming back to Russia today. You like, <laughs> no, stop, 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 stop. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change that just for one person. Joel Pett, oh. the editorial cartoonist at the Lexington Herald Leader, is a horrible person. And, I mean, and racist. Racist. And, and completely... Uh, carrying the bags for other politicians. So this this cartoon, I don't, I'm not encouraging you to watch it, but I'm just saying that it, it happens a lot. But the one this this is the recasting of this COVID thing. Yeah, and basically he's having a Daniel a Daniel Cameron AG cap on in a church, saying, "If I were governor in a pandemic, I'd just let you die." Let, me see, let me see that. Let me see that for a minute because yeah. you know it's interesting about Daniel. He's got his hat on backwards mm-hmm. here. Joel Pett is a 
raging racist. He hates Daniel Cameron. And it's happened. This is not the first time. Because he's right. black. Yeah. Right. There, there is a history of racist cartoons yep. in the Lexington Herald newspaper. In, in 2019, they depicted Daniel Cameron, a black conservative, carrying around the Klan's robes. Mm-hmm. Racist. And, I mean, absolute racism. And it, he's done it again. And this, by the way, is on top of Joe Girth at the Louisville Courier-Journal at one point, writing a column saying, Daniel Cameron is Kentucky's biggest serial killer. By the way, Joe Girth is a white, a white man, white liberal, just like Joel Pett. <laughs> Racist. This this entire line of attack on and the way he's depicted, hat on backwards here in the church. Outrageous. I mean, he might Joel Pett might be the literal worst person affiliated with any media in the state of Kentucky. But why does it allow why do they allow it to go on? We've we've known this for a long time. It happens again and again and again. Why? It, yeah. I mean, people like I, cartoons. I ask yourself, ask yourself why, why, and you know, at the same time, this garbage is coming out. Then you get these like national surveys from Gallup and others saying trust in the media has never been lower. Half of Americans think media is out to deliberately mislead us. Media is in the toilet. Media well, this, media that. Oh, I wonder. Is cartoon after that compared Republicans to the Taliban? Yep. Yeah. It's just, I mean. Yeah. <laughs> At, at, at as, being, point, as being more radical than the well, Taliban. I guess in the long run what it boils down to is you have to look at the publisher. I mean, if this allows it to go on and on and on, and you don't stop it, you don't you know, rein them in. It, but it's, it is, it's, bad. it's beyond the people. Like I said, I'm usually very reserved on these things. Yeah. But yeah. this got my blood it's, pressure up. Because such a it's long just, history of these yes. terrible, terrible cartoons. And, but why do and you let this go on? no one to say... Push back on it. I think ultimately they'll look back later on and say, you know, like like some newspapers have done now and, and like done like uh, retractions from 100 years ago on slavery and things like that, saying we, we were wrong about the Confederacy after all. Someday they'll, they'll do this it, and they'll look back and say, yeah, we, sh- we probably shouldn't have let this racist cartoonist continue to do this, this kind of gaslighting. With Daniel, they, what, what they really hate is that it's the Republican Party of mm-hmm. Kentucky that is advancing – African American leadership first and the most we have, and um, they they hate it. They hate the idea, and 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 Daniel has talked about this. He talked about it at nineteen, and and I think it's true. They love they love the idea of African Americans being involved in politics as long as they adhere to the liberal doctrine that they want they want you to. To do that, that's and in the minute you stick your head up out of the ditch, yep, and look around, they'll shoot it off. It's racist. It's, I mean, I don't know what else you would call no, it. It's, they it's, are it, going after Daniel in the way that they are because he's black. I mean, it's he is a black conservative, keyword black. That's why they're doing it. It is racism, and unfortunately, it's not just, just Daniel, too. I mean. Secretary Elaine Chow faces this pretty much every time oh, Mitch yeah. McConnell's on the ballot. Some Kentucky reporter writes something that brings her heritage and her background into it, totally inappropriate, and usually doesn't get called out. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I'm glad you brought that up. It makes my blood boil, but I think everybody needs to understand that newspaper is harboring a racist cartoonist who, for whatever reason, Daniel Cameron is like caused him to go insane, and he's your racism is showing, Joel. And you know, cartoonists, they don't, here's the thing, I go on TV and I got to debate Randy Weingarten. I got to debate four people at a time. These cartoonists get to lob in their racist attacks. And never have to answer for it. And they don't have to answer for any of it. Well, it's creative license or whatever else. But at the the same time, you would think that someone, some adult in the room, some responsible person would stop and say, maybe we shouldn't be 
a racist newspaper. It, it's harder to edit a cartoon than it is to edit uh, a, an op-ed. It's a great point. It's a great it, point. For an editor to go back and say, maybe we tone this down a little bit. It's harder to do that with a, a little it's picture. terrible. But speaking of the uh, gubernatorial primary, uh, big old debate at uh, on KET this was, past week. Was there a debate? There was a debate. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, you may be aware there's a gubernatorial campaign going on. Breaking what? news. <laughs> Kevin, we'll start with you. What's the, what's, what, what is the big takeaway you had? If, if you can give me the 30-second, the, 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 the brief, what is the, the, the headline coming out of the KET debate by the masterful Renee Shaw? Masterful Renee Shaw, lots of great uh, Kentucky candidates out there. Um, I think uh, frontrunner Daniel Cameron did a great job. He parried some attacks that came his way, delivered a strong message. Um, I, I think it was a great opportunity to have them all up there. It, it, it is the only opportunity that we know of at this point that Kentuckians will get to see both Cameron and Kraft on the same debate stage. Yeah, what is the deal? Because there's a debate next week, Sean. Two. Two and and what are the parameters and where do you see those? Uh, right now, it appears that the one on Monday night, which is uh, Fox Fox fifty six in 56, Lexington, it, yes, and that one, as I understand it, currently is uh, Daniel Cameron, Eric Dieters, and Ryan Quarles, and no no Keck and no Kraft. Correct. Okay. That's my and, understanding. And is that just on one station? Correct. Okay. And then WKYT the next night, and there was some tweets going back and forth on that on that it may be. All the candidates will be there for that one. And is that one broadcast on other stations? I'm not sure about that. I, I feel like one of these maybe there's some deal to, to get it around. We'll have to look that up. We're obviously not prepared, <laughs> but but <laughs> it's but all the, coming together as as we're yeah, talking. Yeah, yeah. But the, but you know it's it's interesting these debates. People ask me, you know, there's been a lot of talk about it in the run up and then in the after. You know, I, traditionally they don't get a great viewership. I mean, right. I think I think a lot of people who have already made up their minds are watching to root for or against their favorite or, or not favorite candidate. Um, I mean, the, the, the big takeaway of the night for me was Eric Dieters smothering Ambassador Kraft. I mean, he, he obviously went there for the purpose of, it's like in a boxing match, you know, like uh, how there's you know, some boxing strategies, like you just, just tying them up. You're just constantly tying them up. And right. so every time she tried to get something going to take on Daniel, who's, I think, the front runner, and she's in second— uh, Dieter sort of showed up and tried to sort of smother her attacks and, and tie her up. So I guess from a strategic standpoint, I would have thought by his demeanor and by him targeting her the entire time that she, that she would be the presumed front runner, just, just from an attitudinal standpoint. In other mm. words, that usually you'd go after the number one guy. and and But why is he choosing to go after the person who is, presumably is in second? I'm not going to ascribe any rational motives to his behavior. However, if I were to do that, here's what I think. He's looking at two he's looking up. He's probably in fourth place, maybe fifth. So he's looking up and saying, Okay, Daniel has a pretty good tranche that are with him and Kelly's got a pretty decent tranche if you look at the polling that are with her. Which of these two candidates support is probably softer, meaning people most likely to float around? Probably crap because they don't have a demonstrable history of voting for her, you know. Uh, that that's that might be a presumption you would make. So from that strategic perspective, you'd try to attack the person that you thought had some votes to give. Because I don't think a lot of the people who are locked in with Daniel are going anywhere, mm-hmm. but the people who are with Ambassador Kraft have a shorter relationship with her than the ones that are with Daniel. So maybe maybe Dieters is like, well, she's got a she's got some something going with a group. Maybe I can easily peel them off, you know, to to try to get any other voters, you know, Ryan, Keck, 
they don't just they just don't have as much support right now. But she's got a pretty decent chunk. But maybe he's calculating they could flow my way. And to be fair, he did throw a couple good haymakers at the other candidates. That too. Is, that they, is, they all got their their yeah, their uh, due. But, but but let's be honest, his plan. Yeah. Was to go in and go after Kelly Craft. I right. mean, it was apparent from the beginning, and he and, and in the day of the debate, he had filed the residency challenge right. to her, which I haven't heard today if that's advanced or what's going on with that. But you know that, so it, he obviously had a day long strategy of engage Kelly on the residency thing, and then take that to the debate and try to try to tie her up a little bit. But what the, the net effect of it was was it allowed Daniel to kind of lay back. Right. And not have to because Kelly did try to engage Daniel a little bit, but most of the debate was was Dieter's engaging Crest. So Daniel got to lay back a little. He parried a couple of attacks, but he didn't have to do a lot. Mm-hmm. And when you're the front runner, that's great. Like a debate where you hit your marks, you hit you have your 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 moments, you answer your questions, but you're not normally we think of a front runner of like everybody else would be just piling on to that person. Mm-hmm. But Daniel was able to somehow float above all that, mostly because of Dieter's. It was kind of a fascinating exercise. And Dieter's actually, I, think, I guess he did go after everyone, because I even remember one of those attacks was against Ryan Quarles, yeah. who was, for the most part, just kind of, speaking of laying back, he was <laughs> laying back completely during the debate. And just, I think part of that, maybe I'm guessing Ryan's strategy was, I'm going to be the cool, calm, collected, and watch everybody else's kind of go at it, and then I'll just be uh, you know very plain spoken at the end. I don't know. Yeah, the net effect of that though was you know if you watched it like what what would you remember? You'd remember Dieters yep. who talks yeah. really loud. And then you'd remember him going after Kraft. You'd probably remember Daniel making a couple of smooth moves, you know. But I think unfortunately for Quarles and Keck, they were relegated to yeah, to yeah. sort of second tier status just but because of the way the debate unfolded among the other 3. That is the, by the way, um, that is a challenge when you have so many people on a debate stage. How do you keep everybody equally involved? And they were at two different tables. It was hard. And so for Renee Shaw, I think it was pretty difficult actually to try to, and you know, you're, you're out there doing it on the fly. It's being done live. You can't stop and look at the clock and whatever. And so it's, it's not an easy thing to do to try to keep everyone equally involved. We, uh, earlier today, our, I guess Renee Shaw gave a speech on Wednesday in Somerset about the debate, and uh, she uh, she said there was one question that she wish, wished that she had been able to ask the candidates that she didn't have time to ask. And as she said, uh, quote, uh, during the day earlier, we had gotten word that the, from the Republican Party that they uh, the Republicans now have 50,000 more voters registered uh, than the Democrats do. And so the one question I didn't get to ask last night, and I regret it, was regardless of who the nominee is, do you commit to being there for them? not just with your vocal support, but working on their behalf to prove victorious in November. Because we announced that we're going to have a unity event. Uh, and after- by we, you mean the official Republican Party of Kentucky yeah. apparatus. Yeah, we're going to have, a, we're going to have a, a, a unity event after the primary is over. And uh, Chairman Brown invited all the, all the candidates to, to attend that. And so. can you tell us, Sean, have, have any of the campaigns already accepted? No, it just was an idea that he put out there via, via the press statement. So we're, we'll organize it here in the next few weeks. But Yes, the election's on May the 16th. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's breaking news to me. I had no idea. Sometime around, between now and early November. June, we'll start figuring it out. Uh, t- takeaways too. I'll, I'll add this, and, and let me say this: not much policy difference, uh, or sort of policy positions across the five of them either, which we talked about last week. I don't think is a bad thing. They all have really good conservative policy positions on guns, on education, pro-life, all those sort of like red meat issues. But then on Things like Medicaid work requirements, something you don't always hear about but is a huge issue. They all agree with that. I think 
uh, I don't know if that was when maybe Kelly cut off Daniel. He was like, I don't know if she agrees with me, but it sounds like she's agree. So on the policy positions, they all have good conservative uh, policies, but it's all, again, very different from the future and the vision that Bashir presents for Kentucky. And so I don't, you know, a lot of the quibbling was sort of on like, your experience or your money or where you're tied to are you establishment are you anti-establishment are you trump are you more trump than more pro-trump than me sort of those sort of like weird like background issues uh but i think voters if you were going in like ah, i want somebody who's really going to be for tax reform they all were for tax you know and so it's an interesting you know viewer watching it if you were trying to find policy differences i don't know that you would have found it but i think that's a good thing i think the party's in a good position the the reality is any of these three the big 3 i mean we've been calling that all year i mean they're all right on policy mm-hmm. they would all be far superior to andy bashir and they're all i think more likable than the nominee from 2019 i don't think hold, any- hold on a second who's the big 3 craft cameron and quarles okay they're the three leaders in the polling mm-hmm. And I, my, my, my belief is none of them would bleed Republican votes the way Bevin did in 19. I think all of them would would have a reasonable chance to get all the Republican votes you would imagine that a Republican would get. And you wouldn't see the separation from the top of the ticket to the, all the other offices. And remember, in 19, Bevin got 49 point whatever, lost by 5,000 votes. All the other Republicans, Adams was the lowest and he was in the mid-50s and then everybody else went up from there. I don't think you would see that separation with any of these three people. So the, the reality is we're blessed with good candidates. The Republicans are. Any of them has a reasonable chance to beat Bashir. And the differences are really stylistic or, as yeah. you pointed out, but you know, experience-driven, but, but not policy. You don't, you don't have anybody here who's anything other than a, a pretty strong free market conservative. Yeah, I wonder if that's why Dieter's uh, sort of ironically Kelly – to him was the establishment candidate because she's kind of like been around the longest, even though she's never held office in the state or any place. So it's sort of that, that those are sort of the only quibbles you saw and, and Dieter's made them a little bit more personal and uh, louder than some well, of the Well, she released kids. a new ad calling herself an outsider. So she, she clearly quibbles with that. Yeah. Again, it's, you know, what are the voter, uh, do they see her as an outsider? Again, she's never held office. And, well, she's never you know, run. So I mean, that's the thing. She's yeah. never... What makes you a quote unquote outsider? So I, I do think voters trying to figure that out. Those were the big differences. Um, and <laughs> I, 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 you know, on the, a couple of funny things. Um, <laughs> Dieters at one point got asked by Renee, you know, cause he was talking about how much he supported Donald Trump. And uh, and she said, well, why is he endorsing Daniel Cameron? He said, that's how loyal I am. He endorsed someone else, and I'm still for him. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was that was pretty funny, uh, the way he, he parried that off. So we are uh, recording this on May 3rd, the evening of May 3rd, the primary that, as a result, now less than two weeks away. Yeah. Uh, it is Derby Week. Mark so your calendar, Sean. We're doing some horse race uh, handicapping here on this race, uh, Scott. And, so, of course, a big factor is going to be what people see. And what they hear in these last two weeks of of the campaign, what what do you expect? And obviously, going into all this, Kelly Craft has uh, and 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 pack and a pack affiliated, or at least in support of her, not affiliated with, but uh, in support of her candidacy, uh, have have been dominating the airwaves. Do we expect that to continue? Well, they have been, but I've been analyzing some of the media buy data and the the, the pro Cameron forces, which includes Daniel's campaign and his 
uh, supporting Super PAC, Bluegrass Freedom, which is not just on the air, but also in mailboxes. But if you just look at the TV spitting, they've almost caught up with with Kelly Craft. Hmm. And in fact, I'm just looking at, this is data from April 28th through May the 4th. So this is spending April 28th through May the 4th. In the Louisville media market, one of the two most important, the pro-Cameron forces actually outspent Kraft, uh, $214,000 to 156000 And in terms of total gross ratings points, how you sort of measure ad, ad delivery, he's at 892 points and she's at 675 In the Lexington media market, interesting, this is the last week. Pro Cameron, 111,000. Kraft, 41,000. And Quarles, right under 60,000. So, in terms of the gross ratings points, Cameron and the Lexington market have over 1,000 points, which is kind of the, the benchmark. It's not exact, but it's kind of the benchmark for ad delivery. So, Daniel's at 1,000 points. The Pro Craft team was at only 400 points. And Ryan Quarles was at 683. So, she was actually the third spender in the Lexington market for the last week. Now, in some of the other markets, like Bowling Green, Kraft is still outstripping um, Daniel Cameron. Uh, but in the remember, in the two biggest markets, Louisville and Lexington, it's going to be between, in my opinion, 65 and 70% of the total vote. So when you're thinking about ad spending, like that's where it's at. Everything else is very fragmented. So you want to drive message there. Now, up, up till now, I, up till recently, yes, aggregate, she has outspent him. But just as we come down the stretch drive, what has become clear to me from the data is that Cameron has actually uh, gotten to a minimum at parity with her, at least in the two largest markets. I've never run a campaign, never been involved in a campaign, but it seems to me that Derby uh, Day, Wave 3, NBC, you know, exclusive coverage all day long. If I were a campaign, and and I would just pour everything that I could into that day. I will also tell you that I've analyzed what's currently on the books, May 5th, through May 16th. And right now, and this can change because you could wake up in the morning and somebody could put more money into it. So again, but right now Cameron is far, he's got far more media placed than Kraft. So explain what that means by placed. You know, in other words, they, they've reserved time? Yes. Yeah, so you call up a TV station and say, I would like to run this much advertising on your station for the next, you know, between now and then. And so you can reserve it. It doesn't become real until you pay for it. But in terms of time that's been reserved, um, Cameron's Cameron's going to outspend her unless she adds to her buy. Again, this is just TV. This is not Encompass. Mail, digital, like these things you see on, you know, when you go to YouTube or whatever. This, this is just TV. The narrative on the race has been that Kraft is just swamping Cameron in ads. But as we come home, that's not necessarily true. How does it work in terms of what rates... A campaign pays for a TV ad versus what a super PAC is going to pay for a TV ad. Great question. You cannot really compare spending between campaigns and super PACs because super PACs pay a lot higher rates mm-hmm. for the same amount of real estate. So whereas a campaign might pay X, a super PAC might pay, you know, X time, X plus thirty percent. In some markets, it could be worse. So so if Kelly Craft's campaign spends a hundred grand on TV and Daniel Cameron's super PAC does too, she would get more penetration because the super PAC just wouldn't be able to buy as many ads. So that's a really good point. The same was true for Kelly's super PAC when it was up, but it has not been on the air for several weeks. They, they apparently have gone dormant, and now all the spending is flowing directly out of the Kraft campaign. Cameron, though, still has money coming out of his campaign and also the super PAC. I will just say, if Daniel goes on and wins this race, and I do think he's the front runner right now, a lot of it will have to do with his outside group showing up. I think at this point they're almost to $3 million. 
in total raise. They're a little under it, but almost. But they showed up at a time when she had really, I think, um, clawed her way into a, into spitting distance of Daniel. They showed up and, and I think really uh, stabilized his campaign and they bridged to the moment where he could get on the air himself and they've stayed on the air and they've also, at least from, from what I see in my own mailbox, they've also handled the mail, mm-hmm. which, um, you, it is not accounted for in this spending I'm looking at, but it's still a big deal. And, and it's, and it's, and it's really expensive to send mail to all the Republicans in the state, not a cheap thing to do. So it's interesting. They've kind of taken two different tacks here, whereas Ambassador Kraft has been pretty much on TV since December. Yes. On I'm, mostly she's been off a couple times, but, uh, Attorney General Cameron has been on focused in, you know, these last two weeks. Um, uh, do you think, primary voters have been paying attention before now are are folks just waking up right now to what's you know there's a race i mean some have certainly but but look i've talked to some people lately in the last few days who are like yeah i'm start, still trying to figure out my vote you know like you could tell they haven't really so is uh, this is this the more efficient spending in the last two weeks i mean you you could make that argument uh that that this is going to be the spending that's the most paid attention to now you might have already formulated some opinions up until now but certainly yes the closer you get to the election I mean, one thing that's clear to me from the Cameron side is that they believed that the Republicans didn't have any idea he was endorsed by Trump. Remember, Trump endorsed Cameron last summer, and and he did it in a little video. But I think based on their advertising strategy, it's obvious they, they had pulled it and come to the realization that nobody knew about it. And so you, you saw both Cameron and the super PAC drive home. He is the Trump choice. He is the Trump choice. And the minute that happened, you got the feeling the thing stabilized for Daniel. Um, so from that perspective, Kevin, yes, when that message started hitting close to the election, that was the right time for the voters who were looking to Donald Trump to tell them what to do, which is not an insignificant number. Yeah, That came, I think, at the right time. It wouldn't have been as good six months ago, but coming here at the end, right time. Oh, can I say one more thing? I, I don't mean to. I don't it's, mean to. It's flyover country with Scott Jennings. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't mean to get into to like I'm lecturing to my class at uh, no, Harvard. I, I, but, I love um, this. I, I'd like to learn. However, even though we were just discussing the most recent windows, here's the total spending so far. Cameron, uh, this is TV, two point six million. Kraft, six point one million. Dieters. This is campaigns only or super PACs too? This is teams. So this is all in for All that in per- for that person. So PACs and campaigns. Yep. Okay. Dieters looks like 180,000. Quarrel, 614,000. And Keck, 3,300. Again, we're recording this on Wednesday night. We could wake up in the morning to see the campaigns and super PACs have placed even more spending. So, But just as we record this tonight, that's what I'm seeing. By market, though, and again, I'm, I really pay attention to the Louisville and Lexington markets. In the markets... Cameron uh, and and Kraft are closer in the Louisville market. She's a little under two to one now. She's run eight thousand points, and he's run forty six hundred. Um, and Quarles is four hundred thirteen in the Lexington market. And this is really interesting because Lexington's the most efficient market. Why? Because it doesn't touch any county that's not in the state of Kentucky. The Louisville market, you're talking to people in Indiana, makes it less efficient. But Lexington, super efficient, over a third of the vote. And in that market, she has run Kraft 6,300 6, points, and Cameron has run 5,100 points. So mm. he has gotten nearly caught up with her in what I would argue is the most efficient and therefore most important media market. Now, where she's dominating, Bowling Green, Kraft has run over 8,000 points. Cameron's only run 2,700. Why might she be doing that? Well, she has a reasonable expectation in some of those counties down there that her running mate, Max Wise, 
and her biggest supporter, Jamie Comer, who lives in that area down there. They obviously have a thought that they're going to try to control some of those Republican counties in South Central Kentucky and really jack up the turnout. So that's obviously a big strategy point for her. She's dominating there. And in Cincinnati, uh, Kraft is the only campaign that's run broadcast in Cincinnati. She's run almost 3,000 points, and I don't see any future reservations in Cincinnati. It's really expensive to buy Cincinnati broadcast TV. And you're mainly Ohio. It's mainly Ohio. But look, there's big counties up there. Boone, Kenton, Campbell, they tend to have lower turnout. However, the population is so big, by raw vote, there are some votes up there Mm -hmm. to be had. Kraft has totally dominated that. Dieters is from there. Cameron's got something going up there on the ground, but in terms of broadcast ad spending, Kraft has been a, a big spender up there. You already clarified this, uh, Scott, at, from the very beginning of my question about this, was to say this is only one factor in in, in many legs on the stool, if you will. Uh, of what, and, and my question about this, and this is especially what we've seen in the last, I would say, I don't know, 15 years in politics in general, a lot more focus on organizing and on ground game and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Is, do we have any indication of who has spent or spent more time or, I don't know, rumblings on the ground of, you know, of, of who, who do we do? we do Is that a factor? Well, I've, he- I've heard anecdotally from people who've had a door knocked on, and I'll tell you one that I talked to this week. My wife, I wasn't home, but uh, a volunteer for Kelly Craft knocked on our door. We live in Oldham County. So she obviously had canvassers out in Oldham, which is a, a big, important county, one mm-hmm. of the most important counties, mm-hmm. and in the Louisville media market. So we know that's going on. I know from talking to people around Cameron's campaign, they've had some canvassing going on. Quarles really is putting a lot of stock into his ground game, and yeah. I think especially in West Kentucky. Joe, you and I chatted with some people mm-hmm. last week from down there who indicated they detected Quarles had some organization. It's harder to track. You can't really see it in the way I'm looking at some of these reports, but there have been reports of some canvassing going on, and and uh, it's hard to measure and hard to know on election night whether it made a difference or not, but it is happening. Speaking of Kentucky, let's talk a little bit about uh, the senior senator from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell. Um, he he can't help but make news because he is <laughs> the Republican leader. He's uh, the, the president has summoned uh, all four uh, congressional leaders to come to the White House and try to figure out this debt limit situation. It seems like the Democrats on the Senate side are just clamoring for uh, for McConnell to, I guess, play the same role as he did back with the fiscal cliff and, and Barack Obama when Biden was the vice president. But he's he said, Kevin, up to this point here, that his role here is to support Kevin McCarthy. He's been extremely clear that there is no measure that could get 60 votes in the Senate that would pass the House. And that's just a feature of... The House is in Republican control, and the Senate, it's although in Democrat control, would need you know a collaboration to overcome a filibuster. So he has said, and, and he's not taking himself out of the game at all. He has said he is there to support the Speaker. And th- there's been reporting this week there is tremendous amount of unity among Senate Republicans on this issue. Tremendous amount of unity among House Republicans on this issue. Uh, they they even looked back, you know. How do we start this year? There was a, a, a contest for leadership elections, and now they're all together. They're rowing in the same direction, and it's the speaker and the president who need to get in a room, figure this out. Once they reach a deal, it's going to pass. No one expected Kevin McCarthy to be in this situation. You know, the whole the whole entire press, every, D.C. Democrats, all these people were completely crapping all over him this whole entire time. Said he could not get this done, and he did. And now you had to see the. 
Green Jean Pierre today, calling. Wait, who? Oh, hold, on, right. hold, on. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, hold on. Green Jean Pierre. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, referring to the bill that raises the debt ceiling as the America Defaults Act. Yeah. I, I mean, it seems to me that the Republicans are the only people that have passed a bill to raise the debt ceiling. So, like, what are they doing? Here's the box, by the way, Biden has put himself in. For all this time, he has argued that default is the most catastrophic thing that could possibly happen, mm-hmm. ever. Now he is in the position of arguing that passing the Republican bill, which raises the debt ceiling, is the most catastrophic thing that could possibly happen. So he's now in a position where he's arguing that, well, actually, default isn't the worst thing. I, this, this makes him seem like an insane person. <laughs> Sean is right. The Republicans are the only people who've passed a bill, which, according to reporting, the White House did not expect them to do. All of their strategic thinking is still based on the idea that the Republicans were going to be gridlocked. But the Republicans are not. And all these people who are begging, well, when's Mitch going to show up and show up and do what? Help help bail out Joe Biden's idiot team that, that, that underestimated Kevin McCarthy? The Republican Party is unified. If Joe Biden wants to do something, he can... Put a bill in the Senate and see if Chuck Schumer can pass it. Or he can, you know, he can start talking to McCarthy. That's the only conversation that matters. Yeah, the irony here that the, like, dysfunctional, ultra-mega, anti-democracy Republicans are the ones who actually got a plan together. <laughs> and Joe Biden's team is tweeting out, like, memes yeah, of, right, like, right. notes and stuff. <laughs> it's like, no, this one team has, like, come to the table, put their ideas forward, and been like, hey, let's do something. And the other side is like... Uh, let's make up some names and like just spread some messaging things out there, and then and they're, know, they're the ones with the happens. absolutist position too. They've said yeah. they're not going to negotiate. It's our way or the highway, which is not how divided government works. Yeah. This country has elected divided government more often than not since World War II. And the point is, you're supposed to get in a room and figure this out. By the way, the bill the Republicans passed, it's pretty modest. It's yeah. modest budget cuts, which I think most Americans would look at a thirty whatever trillion dollar debt. Yeah. And massive inflation say, yes, some modest cuts might be. (laughs) Well, especially if it's just basically a part of it, I I believe, is just saying if you haven't already spent that money from the relief that's from the emergency. The trillions of dollars which has ended. Yeah. I mean, the COVID's over. Yeah. So let's just move on. They say, oh, no, no, we want to still spend that emergency money. (laughs) Just take it back. Here are some provisions. Let's see if this sounds outlandish to any of you. Limit federal spending. The bill would set federal discretionary spending at $1.47 trillion. Next year, and allow it to increase only one percent annually from there, far below the rate of inflation. Can we, can we stop reasonable, right there? Reasonable, not reasonable. Th- this is a, a funding limit that the Biden White House not only has agreed to in the past, but celebrated that they got before, and now it's the end of America. And not to mention, we used to talk in billions. Okay, <laughs> like the, the you talk about the COVID spending, trillions now are just like the new normal. Like, there's still a lot of conservatives who are like, like, let's get back to the bees here. (laughs) All right, here's the next one. Clawing back the COVID money. The bill would rescind all unobligated COVID relief money from the six bills that were enacted from 20 to 22. This would reduce spending by about $30 billion over 10 years, according to the CBO, less than 1% of the total cost of the six bills. So you're recovering less than 1% of all the COVID relief bills. It's a rounding error. Reasonable, unreasonable. Reasonable. I mean, this is literally the couch cushions of, of government <laughs> here. Okay. Money, yeah. <laughs> Here's the next provision. Target the IRS. Republicans had said they would rescind $71 billion to the IRS to get new uh, IRS agents to come and harass you. They have included that proposal in the debt limit bill. I think most people would be perfectly fine with that. They are also trying to repeal the actions taken by Biden on the unconstitutional student debt relief plan. 
So their bill also decides to, I don't know, stand up for the United States Constitution. We don't have a monarch in this country. We have a president and three separate but equal branches of government. So they're doing that. Pretty reasonable. I mean, all of these things, this is not outlandish stuff. It's very modest pro-Constitution provisions that gets the IRS off the backs of the American people. Joe Biden is in a corner right now, and his people don't realize it. Memes and stupid tweets are not going to save them from the predicament they're in. Freedom! (laughs) Freedom! I mean, honestly, this debt limit business, it needs to end with the Republican plan passing. And by the way, if Joe Biden were a complete idiot, he would just say, hey, I'll do it, and then take credit for it. Because there's something to be said in a re-election campaign for looking bipartisan, reasonable, and fiscally responsible. But you know what? He's a husk. It's like, and and the husk has been inhabited by these far-left progressives in his White House. I don't know if he's got it in him. It would be, if they haven't gotten to his brain yet, that would be the smart political play. Join up, do something bipartisan, cut a little spending, virtually nothing. Yeah. Raise the debt limit and say, look at me. I am the great convener. I can bring together the all sides in Washington, D.C. But I just don't know if he's got it in him. Mitch McConnell, by the way, as far as his role in all this, he already played the role like like two months ago. In other words, and Mitch McConnell is probably, as a former reporter, I'm saying this too, he will tell you exactly what's going to happen. Yes. He knows, he can see the entire field. I don't know if what his what his actual vision is. He wears glasses, but I'm just saying he can see, he can see. But he he has this incredible vision, like a Tom Brady esque uh, Jared quarterback. He sees the, he sees the entire field and pretty much will tell you not only what he will do. He pretty much can see what everyone else is going to do too. But he telegraphed this a long time ago. So if only people would have been paying attention. So he's played his role. He said, you got to negotiate with Kevin McCarthy. And one of the the behind-the-scenes roles, have you heard a Republican in Washington, D.C., especially in the Senate, criticize or second-guess McCarthy? Nope. Not a single one. Nope. Nope. And you know who told him not to? And was this is the role of a leader of a conference. Mitch McConnell said, let's all join forces and get behind Kevin. It'll strengthen our hand. It'll strengthen him. It'll lift him up. Kevin went out and got his votes. McConnell kept his people in line, and now it's the Republicans who look like responsible adults, and the Democrats look like a bunch of disorganized morons. And that that this this McCarthy McConnell sort of connection here with McConnell playing sort of the the backseat sort of behind the scenes role, and letting McCarthy go out front and get this, this has worked out beautifully, yep. beautifully for the Republican Party. Uh, it's I know this is a dangerous type of question, but I mean, any prediction? How this all plays out? Oh, Biden cannot default. And the Republicans have have no reason to or incentive to break. I was reading today, you know, some people are like, well, maybe they'll do a short-term deal and, like, you know, give us another couple of weeks. No. Why? Don't. And I I heard the Republicans say they would not. I think the Republicans are going to get something here. Ultimately, what passes? Will it be the full deal they pass? I don't know. But I'll tell you where we started, which was everybody assuming it was going to be a clean increase with a disorganized Republicans doing a bunch of finger-pointing. But I think where we're going to end is Republicans getting some meaningful reduction in federal spending and some federal fiscal reforms and Biden having to eat it. And that's going to be a great day for Kevin McCarthy and for Mitch McConnell, who hopefully can keep most of the Senate Republicans in line on voting for it. Speaking of McCarthy and McConnell, McConnell also taking some time on the Senate floor this past week to compliment Kevin McCarthy, kind of kind of underscore his comments to that Russian 
reporter Jared uh, in uh, <laughs> asking about you know because the good friend yeah yeah <laughs> stop it the, 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 you set me up you I, put I, it on a tee for me true. what's it supposed to the do the reporter the reporter you know asking the question of Kevin McCarthy as you know setting up the premise is like well we all know that you don't support aid for Ukraine he's like ho 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 and he was very clear then to talk about we do support Ukraine. Yeah, but, and of course McConnell. We don't then, support you guys killing them. I- exactly, exactly. But anyway, it, it was another good show of, of well, unanimity there with uh, McConnell. What's been the press narrative on McCarthy? Oh, uh, he's he's going to sell out, you know, the Ukrainians. He's helping yeah. the Russians and blah blah. No, Kevin McCarthy is playing the role of a pro-American interest statesman here, and he set that reporter in their place. Put him in their place right there. He could have easily just demurred or brushed it off, but he made a very, I think, critical statement at the exact right time and put himself right in the middle of mainstream American politics, and he totally blew up all these stupid narratives you know, that exist in the media and on the left out there about what his intentions are regarding American foreign policy. I thought it was beautiful, and McConnell complimented it on it, on it and again— what I love to see is just Republican mm-hmm. unity and cross-chamber unity. You don't mm-hmm. often see that. Right, right. Right, the right. Senate and the House are often you know, <laughs> fighting with each other just because they're different chambers. Kevin, you know, you yep. work there. Oh, yeah. But in this case, you've got intra-party unity and cross-chamber unity with these Republicans. And in divided government, if you've got unified, a unified party across the chambers, boy, does that make a difference in the leverage you have in policy fights. I think perhaps that the first uh, flyover country guest to announce a run for president will happen this coming week. Tim Scott about to uh, yep. about to do this. Any thoughts on the presidential? Oh, race I thought it was going to be Jared. Ah, okay. okay. <laughs> uh, I'm too young, unfortunately. Are you? Oh, you are. Yeah. Yeah. You look. Did you oh. shave your neck again? By the way. <laughs> no. I took the. Uh, what did you, what did you tell me? I look like. You look. You look um, fast. Yes, you look fast. Fan, <laughs> you look so fast. No, you you shave. You shave closer. This last time it was yes, more of it's like. It's not a. It's not a razor shave. It's like a. Like a trimmer. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That's I, I sort of have this vision of you going to an old timey barber shop. I wish. And oh. l- lounging back in a chair, then, getting know, lathered yeah. up, and yes, yeah. and like some. And yes, I tried a straight razor. That. I tried to do that about well, but when I right before I got married, I figured this is the whole thing. I wanted to get a nice clean shave. I went to the barber shop and I said, I'd like for you to give me like the, the use like the straight razor, and they wouldn't do it. Well, in fairness though, mm-hmm. that was before clippers. That That was was, their only option. Was that was all they had? (laughs) That's all the tools they had to work with. Anyway, Tim Scott (laughs) (laughs) is he clean shaven? Uh, Yeah, yeah, he is. He's got a shaved head, right? (laughs) He's clean shaven. Well, look, I like Tim Scott a lot. He came on the pod. I think he's one of the most inspiring Republicans in the country. I hope uh, he is in the race for a while because I think what he has to say is vital. And one thing he told us on the pod uh, when he was on was that he thought. The Republican Party desperately needed an optimistic vision for the future, which Mm -hmm. I wholeheartedly agree Mm -hmm. with. So I don't know what's going to happen, but I'll tell you this. Everywhere he speaks, everybody likes him. And you put him in a in a retail setting in Iowa or New Hampshire. My suspicion is folks are going to walk out of there going, hmm, I like that Tim Scott. Uh, And and one thing, too, from McCarthy to McConnell to Tim Scott to some of the candidates here in Kentucky, the Republican Party is talking more about the future than the past. The Democrats want to relitigate January 6th. We know voters don't want to talk. It was bad. We don't want to talk about it again. We want to look to the future. We want to fix all these problems we've talked about. Tim Scott is the perfect person to give that sort of opportunistic looking forward message. When does DeSantis need to announce something? Uh, I Like yesterday? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I, I mean, look, I, I think this is a great topic to 
to to talk about. I mean, the one of the Trump is obviously in a stronger position today than he was six months ago. Some of it is what's been in the news. He got indicted. Republicans rallied around. Some of it is he's running a campaign. Mm-hmm. The man is running a campaign, which means he's trying, and he has an A-list team around him, and they're trying. DeSantis is not in the race, which, you know, I, I know he's he's sort of trying around the edges here, but he's not in the race. There is no campaign apparatus, which makes it harder. And so, yeah, I think he's going to have to get in at some point and actually put a team together and, and try in a campaign setting. And and I think he will. I think it's imminent. Uh, but but you, you can't discount the usefulness of trying. And Trump's trying. And I think the indictment was was like jet fuel for his yeah, uh, or as Ryan Quarles might say, soy jet soy fuel, fuel for his uh, <laughs> for his uh, campaign, and uh, and and it shows. When he does get in, do you think he's going to have to change his posture a little bit and begin engaging with some of these national reporters? Do you think he can still stiff arm him? I mean, Eric Erickson's been writing about this this really well for like a week, saying that when Ron DeSantis isn't engaging, the story is still being written. It's just his perspective isn't in it. Great question. I think some of the public posturing won't stop. Like, yeah. I'm going to stiff arm them. Because I think part of his message is, is and this is, I think, is authentic to him. He's going to say, Trump says he dislikes the media, but he yet he craves their attention. I not only dislike them, I have no interest in their attention. And so he's going to try to present himself as a more authentic anti-media candidate. And now, look what's happened. Donald Trump's doing a town hall on CNN. Wait, 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 wait. And, and I, which, which will be more fodder on, for the same thing? Hang on, hang on. CNN. Yes. Yes. Your employer. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Didn't CNN brand Donald Trump as like a danger to all democracy? I mean, if they truly believed that he, in fact, was, was going to spell the end of, of the United States of America, why would they give him a platform? I'm going to defend the network because yeah. he is the leading Republican candidate for president. There's a really high percentage chance he is going to be the Republican nominee. CNN is going to cover the campaign, and they have to bring people the news. And I, I am glad. Jared, how inconsistent is this of CNN? I'm going to defend the network. Okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Come on. Well, look. I mean, what are you going to do? Pretend I, like he doesn't exist? Well, look. I also think a lot of that, like, C- they're not going to ask him. They're not going to ask him easy questions. No. Those are some oh, of the true. more like. The anchors, the network doesn't necessarily hate him, but like, are there specific people who work look, there who hate? They, they sure, got, but they well, got, they love Donald Trump because he made them a ton of money. Well, look in 2016, especially. I think they're going to put Caitlin Collins out there in this town hall setting. Oh, good, she's terrific. Yeah, she's amazing, and she's earned this chance. And look, I think the network is going to interview him, facilitate this, hold him accountable. Caitlin's not going to take any crap off of Donald Trump. Look, he he is a major player in this campaign and in the in our pol- whether he gets the nomination or not. If you're going to be if you're going to be the most important news gathering operation in a presidential campaign, you cannot ignore it. I fully believe Chris Licht and the rest of the executive team have made the correct decision here. And by the way, I tend to think other Republican candidates should also engage. And you know, we've had Asa Hutchison on and whatever, but you know, look, these these zero and one percent people. Fine, and I'm not denigrating them, but Mike Pence did a town hall. But I, I think, look, I, I think CNN is going to cover this campaign both both parties fairly and thoroughly, and I think, and I think there is some usefulness 
for Republicans in engaging with it. And I'm, I'm obviously a homer because I work there, but I'm, I'm glad to see this. No, I think it's a good idea to have a legitimate presidential candidate and somebody has a chance to be the president next time around to have him on. Yeah. I'm just saying it's, it's they have to kind of backtrack a little bit from some of the other things. That said, that was basically under, under previous management. Yeah, you know, so I, you know, I, this 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 is probably a good sign. Well, look, of, like we're gonna we're gonna actually have a marketplace of ideas. We're gonna allow other voices on. Witness Scott Jennings. Yeah, on there. Look, here's what I think is gonna happen. They're gonna have the meeting, the town hall meeting, and then you know there'll be people commenting on it, and there'll be people on saying he lied about this or I criticize him for that, and then they'll have somebody on and will say, well, actually he had a point, a good point here, and a good point there. I think you're gonna get a fair hearing, a thorough hearing. And uh, he'll be held accountable. And I think you're going to get fair and thorough commentary on it as well. I think all around, this is, and by the way, I think all the networks should be doing this. Fox News should invite Joe Biden for a town. He'll never do it. He'll never do it. But they should. They should. And we'll end on that note because uh, Joe Biden, as far as his relationship with the press, (laughs) uh, we're we're, we're bookending this show with some compliments of Scott because there's two different uh, major... Uh, commentaries this past week, both of which you started. One yeah. is the Randy Weingarten um, beatdown in a very civil way. Uh, and then secondly, was that you were invited back up to uh, to Washington, D.C. on the CNN coverage of the White House of the uh, Correspondents Association dinner on Saturday. And, you know, Joe Biden was having some fun with the reporters saying in a lot of ways, this, do you have a quote here? OK, yes. here's here's Joe Biden. In a lot of ways, this dinner sums up my first two years in office. I'll talk for 10 minutes, take zero questions, and cheerfully walk away. In the wrong direction is what he forgot. Shaking air hands. He also also left out a key step. I'll shake hands with the air. Yeah, Yeah. right. And then walk away. So, Scott, immediately on CNN, because you guys were doing like post-game coverage, you were right there, and you made it clear from the very beginning, saying he's not laughing with you, he's laughing at you. Yeah, and, and yet these reporters... Sitting there, and the reason I said it is because the New York Times this very week had a story about how little uh, engagement Biden has had with the press. He's had fewer press conferences than anybody since Reagan, really in the modern era. Yeah, he's been the least transparent, and it's also was on the heels of the whole fiasco where he had the note cards right. in his pocket, and it's got the name of the reporter and the question she was going to ask. I mean, this this is not a guy who is, I think. This whole dinner is about like defending the First Amendment and all. He's not doing anything to help. In fact, I would argue he's doing something to hurt it. And then you have the reporters sitting out in the audience clapping for the joke. And I just came on and said, he's, you're the joke. He's not laughing with you. He's laughing at you. And then I saw today someone someone wrote a whole column about what I said. <laughs> was Jim Garrity at the, yeah, in the Washington, Washington Post, Post from National making the exact yeah. same point. But it yeah. needs to be made. Yeah. And I'll tell you something else. I know we've run on along, but I just want to say something else about Biden's speech. He talked a lot about Brittany Griner being brought home from Russia. And I, look, I said on the air that night, I'm glad she's there. Glad she's home. Glad for her family. But the net scorecard here with Biden and hostages is not good. Look what the chain of events was. <laughs> they take Griner and put her in jail. We had to trade an arms dealer named the Merchant of Death to get her back. So she's here, and now he's there. And then what did Russia do? Just a little bit later, they took a journalist, Evan, uh, from the Wall Street Journal. They took him hostage. So now they have both a journalist and in jail 
and they have the Merchant of Death, and we have Brittany Griner, and at this dinner, they're all clapping for this. I mean, there is some world here where you look at this equation and say basically Joe Biden traded Brittany Griner for a journalist, and they're all clapping for it. I'm just, look, I'm glad she's here. I don't like what happened to her. I'm glad she's here. But at the end of the day, Russia got the Merchant of Death, and they've got one of our journalists in jail, and everybody thought this was great. I I just, I don't think the scorecard here for him is, is really all that great. That's Scott Jennings. I'm Joe Arnold, Kevin Grout, Sean Southard, Jared Crawford. Any Derby uh, Derby thoughts before we wrap it up? Well, uh, I, I, I'm not going to be there. It's been a few years since mm-hmm. I missed it, but I'm going to do something with my family this weekend. Mm-hmm. It may I may come to regret it, but we're going to go to Springfield, Illinois, and visit Mr. Lincoln's You won't museum. regret that part of it. But, well, the regretful part is I'm going to then drive them down to St. Louis for a baseball game. Yeah. And while we've been sitting here recording this tonight, the Cardinals blew their lead and lost to the Angels. Did they lose? Yes. This is the worst start for Cardinals in 50 years. I have willingly purchased tickets to a baseball game on Saturday, and I am, <laughs> already, and I am worried that this is going to be. Now, it's an afternoon game, so we can get home or we can leave in the third inning if we need to. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm sadly going to. Be out of the state for the Derby. I'll be. I'll follow it uh, on my phone. But uh, just gonna gonna take the kids and, and do some Lincoln stuff. You guys gonna be at the Derby? Not at the Derby. Uh, my dad has an annual Derby party up in uh, Northern Kentucky that we'll be at every year with the whole family. We're gonna be Sean. I'm going to Oaks, but not Derby. Oaks, by the way, for non-Kentucky listeners, is the day before. It's the the Phillies race. Mm. Jared, I'll be at home. I'll be at home. Yeah, you shaving, you're shaving you, your Joe? neck again. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Joe? I think I'm going to be home as well. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been on the road a lot, and uh, so I think I'll be watching it. To unless to... anybody listening has extra tickets to the to the Derby yes, that they yeah, want to, yeah, yeah. uh, I will say, DM I was, us. I was out at the track today uh, for a, a special event, and I have to say um, that first turn, mm-hmm. yeah, um, seats they put in looks pretty freaking cool. You're you're in my friend uh, in St. Louis, broadcaster Mark Reardon. Whenever I met up with Mark Reardon over the years, he always had a blanket he would take and get there very early, and that was just always just the lawn. Yeah. And that, that also was where the first turn was where the TV anchors, we would hang out for, yeah. for, for earlier in the day coverage. And then, so I had a great – that used to be a, kind of a neat place to be, but well, and, now they're going to sell it. And that place, <laughs> if you stood in the first turn, that is like the iconic photo. Yeah, right. You know, when, when the horses come around the first turn because you've got them coming right at you yeah. and the spires are right overhead, yeah. that, is, that is the iconic derby shot. And uh, I was just kind of looking at it today. Uh, uh, it was a beautiful day at the track today. And, boy, I, the Churchill really did a nice job building that out over there. Really cool. Happy Derby Day to everyone. Thanks for listening. Thanks for Scott, Jared, Kevin, and Sean. I'm Joe. Have a great week. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of Middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Mm-hmm.